by Passion Church, the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. Today's message is entitled, Something Worth Fighting For. Have you ever examined yourself and thought and found out those things that you would fight for? Have you ever went the extra step and said, hey, what, am I, what is worth dying for to me? Uh, there's a war movie called Saving Private Ryan. It came out in 1998. Now, I'm not going to suggest that you go watch it or whatever. It's probably rated R, I'm not sure. It's very violent, very graphic, foul language and stuff because it's, it's a real portrayal of what goes on in war. But anyway, in this movie, this mother has four sons serving in World War II. And uh, they find out that three of them have already died and they've brought this woman three-folded American flag. And so the chief of staff of the United States Army says, we can't, we can't bring this lady a four-folded flag. And so he decides to send in a small troop to rescue this last son whose name is Private Ryan. The movie begins on D-Day and the invasion of Normandy where they're letting those soldiers out of those boats onto that beach where the Germans have a bulkhead of up on the mountains and just shooting them, picking them off like sitting ducks. And our men actually face that and <laughs> those bullets flying and the people falling all around them and they, they just kept coming. They just kept going. Well, they get up this hill and the movie uh, shows Tom Hanks stars in the movie and he's the captain and he gets a f- phone call, says, I want you to go find this Private Ryan and he gives him a small band of men and they... The, the movie is about the struggles and the loss of life in that small band of men and the things that they go through to find this Private Ryan. And they find him, and he's holding this bridge in this small town in this pivotal area over there when they're fighting against the Germans. And they tell Private Ryan that his three brothers have all died in the war so far. Can you imagine? But uh, I'm sure he's overwhelmed. But there's one thing that Private Ryan makes clear. I'm not leaving my troops. I'm, he says, these are the only brothers I got left, and I'm not leaving them. And I'm staying here with my troops. Because he says, I don't see myself as special. I don't, I'm, all these guys are risking their life. Let's show another clip. I have my orders, too, sir. They don't include me abandoning my post. I understand that, but this changes things. I don't see that it does, sir. The chief of staff for the United States Army says it does. Sir, our orders are to hold this bridge at all costs. 
Our planes in the 82nd have taken out every bridge across the murderette with the exception of two. One at Boulogne and this one here. We let the Germans take it. We're going to lose our foothold and have to displace. Private, your outfit wants to stay. That's one thing. I can't, your party's I, over here. Sir, I can't leave until at least reinforcements You got here. three minutes to gather your gear. Sir, what about them? I, two of our guys already died trying to find you, all right? That's right. What were their names? Arwen Wade and Adrian Caparzo. Wade and Caparzo. doesn't make any sense, sir. Why? Why me? Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Is that what they're supposed to tell your mother when they send her another folded American flag? Tell her that when you found me, I was here. And I was with the only brothers that I have left. And there's no way I was going to desert them. I think she'll understand that. That clip is called, It Doesn't Make Any Sense. You find those men, all of them, men of honor, men of courage, men of bravery, men of willing to lay down their life for something. But even in doing the right thing, many times we find ourselves in a situation where it just doesn't make any sense. Is there anybody in here that can say they figured it out and that life makes sense to them? If there is, won't you come up here and finish this message? Really. Because we, we need your wisdom. Because I, I don't think this life makes any sense. We struggle to make sense of things, and, and we blame God. Some blame God. Some blame the devil. Some, we, and we try to, okay, this happened because in that clip, good men wanting to do the right thing. They're, they're having to figure out what's the best thing to do. All of them trying to do the right thing. Let's turn to Romans 5, 7. Say some things are worth fighting for. Say some things are worth fighting for. Romans 5 7. It says, Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. That's on your sheet if you're filling your sheet out. Most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. In other words, they wouldn't die for anybody, not even an upright person, not even a good person. That's most people. It says, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. Now, I believe people in here are more like that someone. I believe that you're 
and noble character and honor and the kind of people that would be willing to die someone. It says someone in rare cases might be willing to die someone for someone who is especially good. Assuming that we're that someone, who is that person that you would be willing to die for? Some might say, well, I would die for my children. That would probably be the most common answer, I would think. Some, I would die for my friends. Die for my family. Some may be like the Secret Service say, hey, I'll take a bullet for the president. You know, someone is especially high up. Someone, you know, that you're trying, that you think it would be worth trying to save. But let's look at verse 8. It says, but God, this is what God does. He shows his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. So to God, you're that especially good person. What? Me? How many feels like you were especially good when, when God found you? I don't think any of us, because it goes on to say, while we were still sinners. Doesn't make any sense. Captain, it doesn't make any sense. Why would he die for me? It made sense to God. Why? Because to God, we're his children. We're his friends. We're his family. And to God, you're that exceptionally rare, good person. And that's what he sees in you. That's why he was willing to die for you. While you were still lost, dead in your sins and trespasses, God was willing to die for you. Only, I, I think it must be because of his, his ability to see the future as clear as he sees the past. His ability to know the end from the beginning. If we could see ourselves as valuable as God sees us, I think think maybe things would make a little more sense. Since people have recognized what happened at the cross, and since this scripture has begun to sink into people's lives, there's been Christians all over the world for centuries now who have been willing to give their life for a cause greater than themselves. Be willing to lay down their lives for their friends. And Jesus said in John 15, 12, to love each other the same way I loved you. And how did Jesus love us? Oh, it was, so, it was so beautiful. Do you have any idea how much Jesus loves you? It says there's no greater love than one lay down one's life for one's friends. I've always looked at that as, you know, we, we see Christ and we see that he actually laid down his life for his friends. But for us, it may be laying down a moment of time for a friend. It may be laying down some of our finances to help a friend. Some of the, so a part of our life. You know, it doesn't have to always be all the way or nothing. If we could see that scripture a little bit differently, yes, Christ gave it all for us. And so we ought to at least be willing to give part of our life a moment, a some of us think, man, I've got to, I, I know I felt this way for a while. I've got to do great and marvelous things. But then when kids came into my life, I began to see maybe, hey, 
Maybe it ain't so much about me doing great things. It's maybe me laying down my life to help the kids do something great. And maybe that is great in God's eyes. What do you think? I went on the Got Questions website because if you've got questions, where are you going to go? They don't tell who wrote this, so I can't give them credit, but I thought I'd at least give the website credit. It said this, martyrdom, and that's when you give your life for Christianity, for, for Jesus. Martyrdom is a great privilege if it is an inevitable. You want me to say that again? It's a great privilege to give your life if it is an inevitable. In other words, you can't stop it. But it is not to be sought. You know what I mean? Jesus said when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. In other words, don't sit there and let them kill you. Try to get away. Don't, don't give your life unnecessarily. But Jesus is not calling for people to make an attempt to lose their lives. Rather, he is calling us to be willing. He's calling us to be willing to give our lives for the sake of Christ. And so I wrote this. Something worth dying for should be something worth living for. If you say, I'm willing to die for my child, I'm willing to die for my Lord, I'm willing, are you living like it? Because that's the real test. A lot of people, you know, they have these, a lot of people come to their funeral and if they were able to get up out of the casket, they'd probably say, where y'all been up until now? I ain't seen some of y'all in 20 years. Right? <laughs> if something's worth dying for, it should be worth living for. And so if we can figure out what's worth fighting for in our lives, what's worth dying for, then we can begin to narrow down what we should be doing here on the earth, what we should be living for, only makes sense to me. And I think we should be living for God. How do we live for God, you say? Will we love one another? If you want to show appreciation for what Jesus did on the cross while you were still a sinner, then you go love somebody else that needs that kind of attention, that kind of compassion, that kind of mercy. And, and we love in real time. You know what I'm saying? In real life, in tangible ways. Not trying to love 400 friends on Facebook, which is impossible. You know what I'm saying? We, oh, my goodness, the devil has got a foothold into society today. He's trying to make us all robots. He's trying to, to take our social skills away. T trying to take our desire to, to actually know somebody, to befriend somebody, to actually love. He, he's trying to numb us down to the point where it's like we think that liking somebody's post is loving them. It's not true. In real life, you have real friends that you go through good times and bad times with. It's not... You're not just going through their highlight reel on Instagram. You know, on Instagram or on these social posts, everybody just puts their best foot forward. And so we, the rest of us are feeling like, man, I don't measure up to them. Who are these people, you know? And, and we're putting all, and then these people, everybody is getting these 
complexes that I'm not as good as so-and-so, and it begins to be a competition. Everybody's showing their best picture. Boy, I saw some pictures on there the other day. It was so obvious that they had put some kind of tool on their face and took all the wrinkles out. <laughs> Lady's about 50 years old, and her face looked like, you know, it didn't even have the normal wrinkles that a 20-year-old would have. And they're trying to, you know, say, this is me. It's really, it's really sad to see how people are crying out for attention. And they're saying, give me a like and, and I'll feel better about myself. What they need to be shown is real life, a real love. They need to be told about Jesus. So if you, if you want to like me, don't like my post. Come over and visit and let's hang out together. Let's become friends, real friends, not Facebook friends. We can make sense out of this life together. <laughs> I don't need you to share a cat video. I need you to share my life. You know what I'm talking about. You know since all this stuff has come about, we're losing touch with one another. We are. As a church, as a society, we're losing touch with one another. We, we know people that we went to junior high with that we ain't seen since junior high. We know what, what they're doing now. But we don't know them. We've got all this knowledge, but we've got so little connection with anybody anymore. Let's turn to Acts 2.42. Can I get an amen on any of this stuff? Do you feel the same way I do? We've got to be careful. Pretty soon we'll be a bunch of robots. We'll forget how to love. And this is the finest hour of the church. We have to be different. Acts 2, 42. The title of this says, The Believers Form a Community. I like that. How many knows they're a believer if they've trusted Jesus? And, and believers form a community. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what you're doing here today. I'm not an apostle, but you're, you're devoting yourself this hour of your life to the teaching of the Bible and to fellowship, which you'll do. You did some before, you did some during, and you'll do some after. And to sharing meals, which includes the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do today if we don't run out of time. And to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many signs and miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place, and they shared everything they had. I mean, today we're living in such a prosperous society, you know, it wouldn't do us any good to sell all our stuff and distribute it to, to one another because everybody's got more than they, could, <laughs> they can handle right now. In verse 45 said, they sold their property and possessions and shared with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity. Are you listening? They worshiped, they met, they shared, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. And, it, and the church grew. Man, it blew up. Why? Because people don't want to join a, a website. They want to join a community of believers. They, wanna, they want people to, to lock arms with and live life with. And we must not forget that. And uh, 
I wanted to introduce an idea I had to you. And you might say, well, I don't know about that, Pastor. But I had this vision for this program that I would like to call Prayer and Care. Prayer and C-A-R-E. Prayer and Care. And it would, it would just simply work like this. Uh, I'd probably start it myself, but I'd be looking for somebody to take it over who had a heart for it. But uh, since I already have everybody's cell phone numbers or whatever, most of everybody, when I, when I get information concerning somebody, say, okay, this is how it would go. I would send a text to everybody in the church. And it would say, prayer and care, semicolon. So you'd know what it is. And then it would say, Don White is in hospital room so-and-so. Brother Daniel is moving this weekend, if anybody could lend a hand. So-and-so is, you know, going through this or whatever. Wouldn't share, you know, anybody's dirty laundry or anything, but, but things that the, the community of believers probably should know. And you say, well, what would I do with that? It would just help us know what's going on amongst one another. You could do, you could say, okay, well, I'm just going to pray about that. I'm going to pray. We could all do that. You may say, well, I'm going to go visit Don now that I have his room number. And you may say, well, you know, I'm off this weekend. I'm going to go help Brother Daniel. Or so-and-so is having a party, and he's invited everybody that wants to show up to come show up. Just a way for us to connect. So we're going to use, if we're going to use social media, let's do it in a way that connects us as a community of believers. Is everybody okay with something like that? We're trying not to overdo it, maybe once a week or something. And, and, so, and like if I'm doing it, then you would call me if you know about somebody's situation that I may not already know about so that I can compile the information and then send it out. But you wouldn't respond to me after you get it. You respond how the Holy Spirit tells you to respond. You, might, you may be busy and can't respond at all. That's fine. But at least we know what's going on within the group of believers that we have. Is, is everybody okay with something like that? And so to make that work, another thing I thought was what we need is a directory. Since we don't, we, we have only just one visitor today, it's okay if I talk about some church-related stuff. I would, I'd like to see everybody in here have a list of everybody else's contact information. Now you're saying, if anybody's saying, oh, I don't want my stuff shared, well, just call the church office and leave us a voicemail or talk to Angie and say, I don't want to be on the list, and that's fine. We won't put you on there. No, no big deal. But I would like to compile everybody that, that we know their information and put And in like two weeks, yes, ma'am? We could, we could eventually look into that. That would uh, require more ink and a lot of other things, a lot of logistics to get that many pieces of directories out with pictures on them. But, but maybe eventually when the finances come in for something like that. But just start with a directory and everybody. That way when you see something on prayer or carry, you say, well, I'm going to call Don or I'm going to call so-and-so. And then you have their number. How many really feels like I see him at church, but I don't really know how to contact him. If I, you know, I know he's got a car for sale, and I don't know how to get in touch with him. So does that sound like a good idea? Maybe in two weeks I'll compile a directory and get everybody a copy. Okay, and it'd just be a simple paper copier. We don't have to start fancy. And, uh, and I would ask your patience if I do something like that, because if your name is left off, don't call me up and cuss me out over it or something, okay? It's just the, it's just the first one. You know, if your address is wrong, don't freak out. It'll be okay. We'll, it'll be a work in progress. We'll fix it up, clean it up, and, 
and get it right as we go if you'll just be a little patient because the first one will just be, you know, we, I think we have most of everybody's information. But if yours is not on there, don't be offended. We'll put it on there for the next trip. But those are a couple things I were thinking about. I think you came while he was in the ICU or something. Well, you know, sometimes brothers and sisters have to duke it out, you know. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 is talking about the body and how there's the toes and the hands and, the, and how they all work together. It says, this makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. See, that's what I want to do. I don't want to be... a, a one of those churches where you come and you sit in the back and you act like you're, amen, and then you get up and leave and you don't know a soul there. That's not the purpose of a church. The purpose of a church, at least the way we see it, is to be a warm, fun-loving family, eager to reach out with God's love to all who have lost their way because everyone matters. And we're a hospital of hope and a fire igniting the passionate pursuit of true purpose in people's lives. How can I ignite a a passionate pursuit in your life. I don't even have your phone number. You know? So we're going to get to know one another. It says if one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you are a part of it. And we want you to feel like a part of it. We don't want anybody to come here and, and just say, that's Pastor Guy's church or however you see this church. You know, that's that church over in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> that's that church across the street from Hooters, yeah. We want you to feel a part of that church across the street from Hooters. <laughs> Go ahead and let's turn to Acts 20. Acts 20, we'll start in verse 16. So good to see you here today, Chad Spear. We love you. Mm -hmm. uh, Bennett Rama, you graduated? Rama, all right, give him a hand for that. One of our own. Got a degree. And uh, now you're, you're moving back to... Michigan, you're giving up your southern papers. All the, all the accent we worked into you, now you're going to work it back out. <laughs> what do you say? Oh, my goodness. Uh, there's some things we couldn't teach him, you know. All right, Acts 20, verse 16. I'm going to read just a lot of this. I was reading this and I was thought, thinking to myself, there's a lot to learn from Paul's missionary journeys and the things that he endured, you know, sharing the gospel. It says, Paul had decided to sail on past Ephesus. That's where he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. And you've been there, right? All right. Where he didn't want to spend any more time in the province of Asia, he was hurrying to get to Jerusalem if possible in time for the festival of Pentecost. But when he landed at Miletus, he sent a message to the elders of the church at Ephesus asking them to come and meet him. He couldn't stop there for a minute, but he didn't want to miss the opportunity to say hello to some of his fellow pastors 
and his peers, you know, the leaders of the church. And he probably wanted to teach them a little something. You know, he's an apostle now. And when they arrived, he declared, You know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I have done the work, Lord's work humbly and with many tears. And if any of you have done the, the Lord's work, you know you need to do it humbly. And if you've done it in any period of time, you're going you're to realize it comes with many tears. I have endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews, and I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I had one message for the Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, there was nothing that could stop me. That's what burned into me like a fire shut up in my bones. I, the word of God, the gospel message that you must repent of your sins and turn to God and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was, I had to tell you that. I had to tell you. And that's the way we should all feel. And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Now we know the Holy Spirit doesn't force anybody to do anything. But he's saying, when the Holy Spirit told me I had to... I, I was, must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. He said, I bound myself to do what the Holy Spirit was saying. I don't know what awaits me except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, talking about a noble warrior, a man of character. He had made up his mind what was important, what made sense, what was worth dying for. And he said, my life means nothing to me unless I do this. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. And now I know that none of you to whom I have preached the kingdom will ever see me again. He understands this is going to be his last hurrah. I declare today that I've been faithful, and if anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault. For I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. He's got a clear conscience. He's told the people what they needed to know. He didn't preach you know, like a preacher to people having itching ears. He told them the hard truths. And he definitely told them that Jesus is the only way. He told them the necessity of repenting. So God, guard yourselves, I'm sorry, guard yourselves and God's people Feed the she and shepherd God's flock, his church purchased with his own blood over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you elders. And so now he's encouraging them to do the same. And it goes on and he talks about uh, he didn't ever covet anybody's stuff. It was never about this stuff. He didn't want any of that. And he, he's been an example. And he, then in verse 35 it says, remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, how it's more blessed to give than receive. I think that's one of the the underrated verses of the Bible, probably one of the most important verses of the Bible. If you just get a hold of that, it would radically change your life. It's more blessed to give than receive. And that's not just at Christmas time. It's all the time. And it says, when he had finished speaking in verse 36, he knelt and he prayed with them. They all circled. I mean, they all cried as they embraced and kissed him goodbye. They all cried. I don't know how well he knew these people. But they all cried and kissed him goodbye. And they were sad, most of all, because what he had said, that they would never, he said they would never see him again. And then they escorted him down to the ship. 
So these people are sad. They don't want him to go because he's told them you'll never see him again. There's a sense of loss. If you keep going in chapter 21, it says, after saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, he got on a ship and he sailed to different cities. It says four or five different cities. And then in verse 4 it says, we went ashore and found the local believers and staying with them a week. He just found some local believers. He may not have never seen these people before, but he came in. He said, show me where the Christians are, the people of the way. That's who I hang out with. So he went, he went and found them, and he stayed with them a week. And the believers there prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. Well, the Holy Spirit's already told Paul that he's go, he needs to go to Jerusalem. But they're just, sometimes, you know, you can hear that the Holy Spirit's saying that something bad's going to happen in Jerusalem, and you interpret that as, Paul, don't go, don't go. But Paul already knows he must go to Jerusalem. But it's being confirmed here that something bad is going to happen in Jerusalem. And when he returned to the ship at the end of the week, the entire congregation, including women and children, left the city and came down to the shore with us. The, the whole congregation and their wives and their children, they all came down. They, they probably didn't know Paul well, but he spent a week with them. And now they're, they're bringing him down to the ship again. And they knelt and prayed and said farewells. And then we went aboard and they returned home. Everywhere he goes, believers are encouraging him and showing care and concern. The next stop after leaving Tyre was Potlimus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed for one day. The next day we went on to Caesarea and stayed at the home of Philip. Philip had four daughters who were virgins, and they prophesied. And then in, in verse 10 it says, Several days later a man named Agabus, who also had the gift of prophecy, arrived at Judea, and he came over and he took Paul's belt. And he bound his own feet and hands with it. Then he said, The Holy Spirit declares, So shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. So he's getting a prophecy. And he gives a demonstration. He takes Paul's belt and he binds himself with it. He says, This is what's going to happen to you when you get to Jerusalem. When we heard this, and this is the writer speaking. When we heard this, I think it may be Luke or something that wrote Acts. I'm not sure, but whoever was traveling with Paul. He said, when we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. They're saying, Paul, don't go. Don't go. We, we can't stand to see you bound like this and to possibly lose your life. But Paul said, why are you all weeping? You're breaking my heart. I'm not only ready to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord. Paul says, you're breaking my heart with all this crying. Stop weeping for me. Don't you understand that this is what I must do? Like Jesus said. Peter, don't you understand this cup of suffering? I must drink it. This is why I came. If the Holy Spirit has bound me, this is where I'm going and you can't stop me. You're breaking my heart. And it sounds like he's getting on to the people, but you know what I think Paul's really thinking on the inside? He's thinking, because all these people care. I say they're breaking my heart, but they're strengthening my heart. They really are. They're giving me the courage to go do this thing because they care and they understand and they value what I'm about to do and they value my life. And when your life is valued, you understand Maybe it's not so hard doing the Lord's will when you know your brothers and sisters love you. 
Maybe the reason it's so hard for you to do the Lord's will is because you don't know that you're a part of something bigger than yourselves. That people care for you and they're rooting for you and they're praying for you to fulfill your call in this life. When you know that your sacrifices are valued and appreciated, it, it gives you the strength to endure them. He goes on to say, when it was clear that we could not persuade Paul, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Whatever you're doing for the Lord is not in vain. We can see it in the scriptures, but when we feel it from our brothers and sisters, it encourages us to face the trials and the hardships ahead. And that's why God gave us the church, so that we can be there for one another. You're breaking my heart, but no, you're really strengthening me because I see you care. If we're going to get to where we need to be in our lives, we need one another. We need the encouragement and we need the, the care of one another. Back to the movie Private Ryan, and we'll close. Private Ryan didn't want to leave. He says, Why? I'm not special. You tell my mama that I was here with the only brothers that I have left. And he makes a persuading case. And Captain Ryan, it wasn't his name in the book, but we'll call him because it was, I mean, uh, top, Captain Hanks, Tom Hanks was playing the role. I don't know his real name in the movie, but he realizes, hey, he's got a point. This is an important bridge. And there's a lot more lives at stake. And so he makes a decision, okay, me and my men will stay here and help you defend this bridge, but Private Ryan, you're staying with me, and you stay out of the main fight of it because I want you alive. So he's trying to do both things at once. Well, the good news is, is the Germans come across, and they're much heavily armored, and they got these big tanks. What are their tanks called? Sherman tanks or something? Oh, that was American tanks. What was it? The Tiger? Tiger? Tigers and Panzers. They got these big Tigers and Panzer tanks coming across, and these guys ain't got nothing but some rifles, you know, and handguns and stuff. And they're, they're making bombs, sock bombs out of some grease and a sock and putting explosives in it, and, and they're doing all these things. And their plan was to try to defeat the Germans as much as they can on this side of the bridge and then fall back across the bridge. And they've, they've wired the bridge with explosives, and they got this detonator, and the last man across is supposed to hit the detonator and blow it up. So the Germans can't follow. Well, in the movie, uh, they get across, and the Germans are wearing them out, and, and uh, they've got them pinned down, and they're hiding on the other side of the bridge, and they want to get to the detonator, but they can't get back to it. And then finally, the captain runs to try to get the detonator, and he's shot in the chest and falls down, and he's laying there against a motorcycle that's all beat up, and he's sitting on the middle of the bridge, and they figure he's dead, and so the Tanks start to come across the bridge, and uh, Hanks pulls out his little 45, which is nothing compared to a tank, obviously, and he barely can hold his arm up, and he's shooting at this big tank. It says like a bing, bing, bing off that tank, and it's doing nothing. And all these bullets are coming from everywhere, and he's laying down there in his last gasping breath shooting this little 45. And his last bullet, he goes, Pow! 
and the tank blows up. It's like a miracle. But then you hear that, and it was one of those tank buster airplanes came by and dropped a bomb on it. And the Americans arrive, the Air Force arrives and wins the battle for them and destroys the Germans. But in the process, Captain Hanks passes away right there on the bridge. And it kind of reminds me him giving his last bullet. <laughs> he probably would have pulled out a pocket knife if, if, if he'd have had to. He's fighting to the end. And it reminds me of Jesus on that cross. They, they stuck him with that spear and, and drained every last drop. He gave all his bullets for us on that cross. And you wonder, why was he doing it? To save Private Ryan, an insignificant private. He was no, of no rank, you understand. Private Ryan was of no rank. And neither were we. And Jesus looked and said, I'm going to save Private Chandler. Because he's important. He's important to me. I'm going to save Private Megan. Private Callan, Private Cedric. We were of no rank, no reputation. We, while we were still sinners, he gave every last drop of blood. And I can't help but think, to a love like that, I have to respond by being a good man, making my life count. I want to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Let's watch this last video clip. Citizens of a grateful nation, I'm wishing you good health and many years of happiness with James at your side. Nothing, not even the safe return of a beloved son, can compensate you or the thousands of other American families who have suffered great loss in this tragic war. I might share with you some words which have sustained me through long, dark nights of peril, loss, and heartache. And I quote, I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Abraham Lincoln, Yours very sincerely and respectfully, George C. Marshall, General, Chief of Staff. with you, I, I wasn't sure how I'd feel coming back here. Every day, I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. 
I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.